How can we effectively communicate that we're moving beyond climate change to a state of climate crisis? The trapped heat energy on Earth is equal to a million atomic bombs going off every single day. Today we talk to someone who's been mobilizing the public mind for over 50 years. David Fenton has been named one of the 100 most influential PR people by PR Week. For more than five decades, he has pioneered the use of PR, social media, and advertising techniques for social change. He was formerly director of public relations at Rolling Stone magazine and co-producer of the No Nukes concert in 1979 at Madison Square Garden with Bruce Springsteen, James Taylor, and other artists. He has also helped create J Street, Climate Nexus, the Death Penalty Information Center, and Families for a Future. He founded Fenton in 1982 to create communications campaigns for the environment, public health, and human rights. He sold Fenton a few years ago to work on climate change full-time. David Fenton, welcome to the One Planet podcast and the creative process. Nice to be here. Thank you. We're very honored to speak with you today. You're going to share with us, I believe, a passage from the Activists Media Handbook, which details your over 50 years working as an activist. Just set up the passage you're going to share with us. Well, it's about how I got started as an activist while I was a high school student at the Bronx High School of Science in New York, which I eventually dropped out of because of all this activism. And I never went back to high school and I never went to college for a day. And my mother never forgave me. Well, you educated yourself. So I think that's more important. Yeah, hopefully. So shall I read a little bit? So at Bronx Science, the high school I was at, a group started an unauthorized underground student newspaper called Sans Coulottes, inspired by the French Revolution. Distributing the paper at school brought immediate suspension. I nervously visited Paul Steiner and Meredith Moran, the student couple who founded it at their pad on the Lower East Side. They were the coolest kids in the school, glamorous, artsy activists who were living together full-time at the home of Paul's father, an ex-communist. I sheepishly offered Paul and Mary photographs of police who had beaten up students at an anti-war demonstration. They were thrilled and accepted me into the cool kids' corner. They also gave me my first photography byline. Bronx Science's strict dress code prohibited pants for girls, and you couldn't wear blue jeans even if you were a boy. At the time, we were all reading Black Panther Eldridge Cleaver's Soul on Ice, his prison memoir. It inspired us. One day, all 3,000 students showed up at school in blue jeans, boys and girls alike. That was the end of the dress code. What could the principal do in the face of that? It was my first lesson in grassroots organizing. We did it by word of mouth. There was no internet, no Instagram, nada. We did distribute leaflets, which we printed out a rudimentary home mimeograph machine. That was the cutting edge technology of the time. Next, we demanded the school begin a black studies program in high school, no less. The principal refused, so we staged a sit-in and took over his office. The police were called and several students were arrested, but we got the black studies program. Bronx science was almost entirely white and Jewish at the time. Today, it's mostly Asian. Two of my closest friends were black, including Reggie Lucas, who later played guitar for Miles Davis and produced Madonna's first album and wrote The Closer I Get to You for Roberta Flack. In the summer of 1967, when I was 15, my parents sent me to Europe on a 30-day teen tour, which ended in Amsterdam, where I volunteered to procure hashish for our group of 15 kids. Right after buying it, I got back on my rented motorbike and was seized by two plainclothes cops who pushed me into their police car while pushing their hands into my pocket. They took me to jail, where I spent five days in solitary confinement 
I know, I know. I thought it was legal in Amsterdam, too. The prosecuting attorney threatened me with six months of hard labor unless I identified who had sold me the hash. Hard labor. I had never done any labor. So I sheepishly identified the guy from Mugshots. Next thing I knew, I was in a police paddy wagon with the dealer. I had ratted out. I was sure I was going to die, but I was deported instead. Soon after, I joined a group of high school students who started the high school mobilization against the war in Vietnam and the New York High School Student Union. We were all terrified of the draft, which sent many of us to Vietnam. Hell no, we won't go, was our slogan at many protests under the watchful eyes of the police. Then we started the New York High School Free Press, which was the newspaper of the radical New York High School Student Union. So that's how I got started as an anti-war countercultural activist in high school. I was lucky to be in New York. It was the center of all that kind of activity. And I was a pretty good photographer. So that was my first creative work as a photojournalist. Riots, demonstrations, tear gas, rock stars. That was my specialty. Well, that's what's great about the book too, because there's a spirit of adventure and fun and, and really important activists that got things done, but you seem to have had a lot of fun along the way. Like Abby Hoffman, you talk about the musicians. And it just makes me wonder, we're making progress. You've made a lot of progress, so we're standing on your shoulders. But were people then, you know, we're talking about in the 60s, sometimes as they seem freer and smarter. I wouldn't say smarter, freer in a certain sense, because life was inexpensive compared to now. My first apartment in New York City, near Columbia University, was a one-bedroom apartment for $115 a month, which I split with a roommate. So you could live very inexpensively. Jobs were plentiful, and they paid much better than today's jobs in relative terms. And so... People could go get a job for six months and save up enough money to go be an activist the rest of the year. People today in their 20s have much more crushing debt burdens and mortgages and the cost of living is so high. So that, I think that makes a very big difference. We were optimistic. We were kind of semi-utopian. And some of that was fueled by the music of the time, which is not that way now. And some of it, including the music, was fueled by psychedelic and drug experiences that were utopian. Yeah. And you learned early on from your experiences doing PR for Rolling Stone. And you say you understood the power of getting influential musicians and other cultural figures, celebrities, the power that has. And sometimes I feel like everything is a little bit corporatized. It doesn't have that same cachet, I think. I'm working with the great Hollywood film director, Adam McKay, right now, who made Don't Look Up, which is the second highest grossing film in Netflix history or highest viewed film. And he made The Big Short and, you know, Talladega Nights and Step Brothers and Anchorman. And where he's doing a climate content studio called Yellow Dot Studios, it's yellowdotstudios.com. And you'll see it's very satirical, very edgy, very funny, very anti-establishment and really catching on. So a lot has been corporatized. That is certainly true, but not everything. And it sounds like a cliche, but it really is true that history moves in pendulums and waves. And whatever is happening today is not going to last. It will change. So you have periods of concentrations of wealth and power, and then you have periods of rebellion. And I'm quite sure we're headed for another 
period of rebellion. You can see it a little bit now in the labor strife in the United States and the strikes. You can certainly see it in the massive demonstrations in France and in Israel. Yeah, you know, excessive concentrations of power breeds rebellion, and that's just inevitable. And the climate crisis is going to cause a lot of rebellion as people figure this out. And I think it's coming very soon, actually, because as you've noticed, the weather is getting very bad. It's become a nonlinear accelerating phenomenon. And people will wake up to that. I just hope they wake up in time. Yeah, it's a question of time. And one good thing about it is that often our politics is polarized, but people who are usually opposed left and right will have to come together because, you know, we share this earth. We all breathe the same air. Well, you know, it's like in times of war, ideological differences tend to get put aside. Remember, the communists and the nationalists in China unified their military commands to expel the Japanese invaders in the 40s. So I think what's going to happen to the atmosphere and the biosphere is going to be like a war to people. And so, yes, I don't mean to sound naive. There's a tremendous divide right now. But I think a lot of people will have to come together at moments of survival, which is what we're facing. Yeah. And right there, I just like how you use language. This is one thing that is pointed out in your book is that we have to use simple language. Survival, that's the word we understand. You point out existential crisis is something that seems vague. That's for the Café de Margot. (laughs) (laughs) It's for French people. (laughs) Right. Yeah. The activists really need to pay attention to mass awareness. Political change is a function of gaining political power through mass awareness, mass mobilization, and mass unification. And we're in a period on the left right now, which has happened in history before, where there's a lot of internal folk about the fairness of the processes within NGOs and activist organizations and the legacy of racism in these organizations and gender and identity issues, all of which are essential and important and valid. But Those are not the pathways to mass awareness and mass unity. If you overemphasize those kinds of issues, it's a kind of sectarianism, which is the opposite of how you unify people to get political power. You know, if you don't assemble majority support, majority sentiment, doesn't mean everybody, it means majority, then you can't take power. And if you can't get power, guess what? You can't help the vulnerable. You can't help the oppressed. This is like most things in life, a question of balance. If you overfocus on the legitimate feelings and plight of subgroups of the population, by necessity, you won't establish what Reverend Jesse Jackson used to call the Rainbow Coalition. And without the Rainbow Coalition, you don't win. Exactly. And I like the humility with which you also recognize those on the right who politically you don't share the same beliefs, but their abilities as messaging and simple communications. I mean, it's almost like an anthem, like just to go into those things. And you know the power of music and you use the power of musicians, but it's an anthem. It has to become an anthem for us to unfortunately take action. Yeah, I mean, when I say make America great again, everybody watching this probably cringes, and I do too. But we have to learn from that. That is actually how the brain works. It works through being exposed to the repetition of simple, easy to understand messages that have an emotional and moral aspect. That's how the brain learns. It doesn't learn from facts. 
It doesn't learn from figures. It doesn't learn from policy pronouncements. And it certainly doesn't learn from complexity. And how the brain learns is how public opinion learns. It's how public opinion changes. So we need to get out of our bubbles. I mean, here's an example. People need to be conscious of the difference between internal and external communications. So, you know, if you're in a movement gathering or movement group and you want to say that you believe in intersectional environmentalism, well, that's valid within your group. And we should be intersectional. But if you use that in your public communication, one, no one understands what the hell you mean by that. Not at all. Second, you're branding yourself as an other. You're not part of their world. You don't understand them. You have some weird agenda of your own and you're incomprehensible. So how can we use language like that as organizers and change makers? We must not. And there are many examples of this. I hope my book makes a contribution to helping activists learn the difference between what the communists used to call an internal line and an external line. You know, the communists had a lot of things wrong, but that they were right about. And in terms of the figures, like often talking about 1.5 degrees and change, you know, that sounds so small since pre-industrial levels already, I have to think about that. It seems like yeah, the, but when you put it in terms like in the book, over 1 million atomic bombs worth of heat every day. Just explain that because that, sure. I listen, you know, I have to read that sure, again. Of course. So it kind of goes like this. The, the linguists and the cognitive scientists have established that as you're exposed to language from childhood and over your lifetime, it forms literal circuits in your brain. They call them frames. So in order to communicate successfully with people, the best way is to use language that activates existing frames. So, for example, when I say we need to get to net zero by 2050, nobody knows what I'm talking about. There's no existing circuitry to process that language. What the hell is net zero? <laughs> is that less than zero? Now, if I say we have to stop pollution because pollution is heating the planet and we've formed a blanket of pollution around the earth that is trapping heat that used to go back out to space. And then everybody knows what I'm talking about because they know what pollution is. That's an existing mental frame. And by the way, no one will defend pollution. You won't find anyone that thinks pollution is a good thing. So it's a universally negative frame in all languages. And then when I say it's like a blanket around the earth, there's another existing mental frame. Everybody knows what a blanket is and how it works. It traps your body heat so you don't get cold. So that's what we're doing to the earth. And yes, all that trapped heat energy on earth has to go somewhere. So it goes to create stronger storms and droughts and floods and melts the ice and how much energy is it? I tell this story in my book. I, I had the privilege of working with the great climate scientist, Dr. James Hansen, and we were writing his TED Talk some years ago. And he said, I really want to put in this talk that the Earth is way out of energy balance. There's so much more heat energy coming into the atmosphere than is now able to go back out to space because of these gases we've put in the atmosphere. And I said, great, Jim, let's put that in the speech. You know, how bad is it? How much energy is it being trapped? And he said, it's really a lot of energy. David, it's a quarter watt per square meter. And I said, oh, wow, Jim, that doesn't sound like very much. He got really mad at me. And he said, what do you mean? There's a lot of square meters in the earth. <laughs> like, okay, like maybe we could find another metaphor to you know communicate this. And another scientist was in the room with us, took out his calculator and he said, oh yeah, it's like exploding 450,000 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs in the earth's atmosphere every day, 450,000 H-bombs a day. And I said, yeah, I think people can understand that. And 
because this was, I don't know, 12 years ago or so. And of course, we've polluted so much more that now that's a million H-bombs a day. That's the energy equivalent being trapped on Earth, in case you wonder why we're having all of these spiking temperatures. So people can understand that, but we don't use language and imagery and metaphor like that. Now, meanwhile, the activist community is in a battle to the death with the fossil fuel industry and their paid political prostitute agents. And those people go to business school and they study marketing science and cognitive science. And they've had to, in most cases, use those skills to advance their careers. They've had to sell products and services to get ahead, most of them, not the financial industry. And so they have a natural orientation to dominate discussions with effective, sticky, memorable language and imagery. And they also know that they have to ensure that their messages and imagery get out there and actually that they have to get the population exposed to that. So they're very focused on propaganda. So we're in a propaganda war. And as my friend, Dr. Anthony Leiserwitz at the Yale Project on Climate Change Communication likes to say, this is a propaganda war, but here's the problem. Only one side's on the battlefield. We largely are not. Yeah, we're kind of fair. And I think that they know they have to be together with the one message because actually it's hard to sell some of the things they're trying to make people believe. So they have to do the repetition and and they're unfortunately good at it. So in your, as you say, your autodidactic, you kind of hit the ground running, photojournalism, getting involved, campaigns for a variety of not just environment, but like social justice issues and so many things. Who are some of your mentors along the way that you really learned important messaging and worked alongside as well? Well, my first professor of public relations was a very amazing activist of the 60s named Abby Hoffman, who most young people today have not heard of until I say, did you see the Netflix movie, The Trial of the Chicago Seven? And people say, yes. I said, Sasha Baron Cohen, he played Abby. And he really played Abby. I mean, he was Abby in that movie. So Abby was a master at propagating myths in the service of activism. And here's what I mean by myths. So Abby and a couple of friends started this group they called the Youth International Party which some people may have known as the Yippies. And it was just Abby and like three friends. And yeah, he would get the New York Times and the Network Evening News to report today the Youth International Party said or did. And I'd be like, how did he do that? It's only him and three friends. (laughs) And he did all this in the service of ending segregation in the South and ending the war in Vietnam, legalizing drugs, et cetera. So he was a master at this. You know, back then, it's hard to believe, but it was against the law to wear an American flag as a piece of clothing. You'd get arrested. So he went on the top-rated TV talk show at the time in the United States. It was called the Merv Griffin Show, wearing his American flag shirt, which was illegal. He was constantly arrested for this. So the producer of the TV show dealt with this by blocking out half the TV screen. So you could only see Merv Griffin, the interviewer. You could not see Abby. Now, and that producer, by the way, was Roger Ailes, who later went on to brainwash a third of America by starting Fox News. So that is masterful. Agitprop, you know, Abby called a demonstration with others at the Pentagon in 1967, and he invited everybody to come levitate the Pentagon with him. And like 25,000 people showed up to levitate the Pentagon. The guy was a genius. And, and 
of course, if you read the transcript of the Chicago 7 trial or you watch the movie, you know, they basically turned it into theater and into very comical theater. So I learned an enormous amount from him. And then I had another teacher who started teaching me public relations while he was in prison. And his name is John Sinclair. He's still alive in Michigan. And he was in prison for sentenced to 10 years for two joints of marijuana, two roaches, actually. I don't know if people use that term anymore, but it's like the end of the joint. And his case was a constitutional challenge to the marijuana laws in Michigan for wrongly classifying marijuana as a narcotic like heroin and cocaine, which of course it isn't. So I get involved in the campaign to free him. And he starts writing me these long handwritten yellow legal pad letters about how to do it. He said, you know, call this journalist, take my wife to the Supreme Court, call a press conference, put a gag on her mouth and tie her hands behind her back, do this, do that. I didn't know any of this. I was a photographer. So I started following what he said and it started working. And then Back to Abby, he got John Lennon and Yoko Ono to come to Ann Arbor, Michigan to play a benefit concert for this guy, Sinclair. And it, the Beatles had just broken up. This was a very big deal. And uh, that happened on a Friday night. And Monday morning, the Michigan Supreme Court granted Sinclair release and overturned the state's marijuana laws as unconstitutional. And I said, wow, rock and roll, powerful stuff. So, so yeah, I had great teachers actually, and there've been quite a few people that have been great at this. Like if you look up David Brower, for example, who ran the Sierra Club for many years, he was a master at using advertising to change debates about environmental issues, to seize the agenda, to push the media to cover things that they weren't. So yeah, I learned a lot. another guy named Jerry Mander who used who just passed away who started a group called the Public Media Center and was a pioneer of the use of advertising for social issues. Unfortunately, the movement groups don't do much of that anymore. And I think it's really a shame. Yeah, we need to get more of that in the streets kind of activism too. And anyone who's listening, I know the younger generation doesn't know Abby Hoffman as well. I know because my mother's partner for a number of years was Leonard Len Wineglass. Oh, so really? So, the, uh -huh. you know, who represented, of course, your other friends, Tom Hayden, and of course... He was a truly great man and a fantastic movement lawyer. Yeah, I knew him and Bill Kunstler, too. Yeah, those people are amazing. I dedicate a bunch of my book to people like that who pioneered all this. Yeah, and really, there's so many stages of activism, and we need it from the public policy to in the streets. Evelyn, who's also a young activist for the environment, would you like to come in and have some questions? Yes, definitely. So you've talked a little bit about the way we talk about climate change now as a communications failure, and it needs to be oversimplified for the general public. So I wanted to know, really, who has failed here? Is it the education system? Is it politicians? Is it scientists? Is it a failure at all? Or is it a mix of everyone? Mm. Well, all these people you mentioned, except for a bunch of politicians are you know, very well-intentioned and they've really tried. I would say the primary issue is that our community doesn't value communications. We have often, you could say, people that study the humanities, the law, and the sciences, as opposed to people who go to business school, they tend to be inculcated with the view that the great linguist George Lakoff calls the enlightenment fallacy. That is, that if you have a great idea for a policy or a technology, that will magically sell and replicate itself because of its sheer internal brilliance. And what goes with that attitude is a subconscious disdain for selling things. That's dirty and manipulative and beneath us. And we don't have to do it because our ideas are so intrinsically brilliant. This is the way, you know, for example, engineers think. So I'm afraid that 
much of the environmental NGO world, at least here in the U.S., has that view. So you can see it in how they spend their budgets, the very, very large budgets of most, not all, of these environmental groups are spent on really good things, on policy, on law, on science, but almost nothing is spent on public communications. So they don't reach the public and they don't even think about it. And they really only go out to communicate mostly when they're trying to raise money. So we have a fundamental problem that it's not a priority. It's not within their awareness. And this extends, I'm afraid, although it's changing, to some of the philanthropic institutions that support the environmental and climate world, who also do a lot of fantastic policy and science and support amazing legal work and some grassroots organizing. But public communications is not supported very much at all. So this is not valued. So meanwhile, in the scientific community, you know, those people are taught that complexity is how you get ahead. You have to differentiate yourself and write papers about something that no one else has ever written a paper about, right? Sound familiar? And they're also taught that simplification is a form of bastardization. It's not accurate to simplify because it doesn't capture nuance and complexity. So all these factors combined are why we're in this boat, I would say. But the good news is it's really fixable. We now have the data. We know how to talk about climate change for different audiences. We know who's good at it, who's effective spokespeople. We know what language works. We know what imagery works. So as we get this information and knowledge into more hands, hopefully this will start to change and people will use it and it'll get funded more because it is a solvable problem. People ask me all the time, David, you've worked on this end of the world stuff climate change since 1990. And I have. So how do you stay optimistic? So here's my answer. I have a lot of faith in the public that if you get them good, accurate information in digestible and proper forms, that they're going to do the right thing. They're not going to say, go ahead, destroy my house, ruin my children's future, make the price of food go out of control, collapse the insurance markets, you know, make it impossible for me to go outside because of wildfire smoke. They're not going to say that when they know, but they don't know enough about it yet. And the media isn't helping because the TV media in our backwards country almost never tells people what's causing all this extreme weather. So as we work on these things, the public will wake up there's no question about it, but we could speed it up. I hope that answers your question. Yes, definitely. And you mentioned nuance. So I wanted to ask for organizations and activists that are working on communications and public relations. You said before that they all talk about climate differently. So our potential echo chamber is not powerful. Right. How do you navigate the need to oversimplify for the public versus the need for nuance and attention to the many issues caused by climate change? Well, I don't like this word oversimplify with all respect. Simplify but simplify accurately and ethically, which you can do. When I say we put a blanket of pollution around the earth that's trapping heat, that's true, even though it's simplifying. Take the great climate scientist, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, who, if you don't follow her, she's certainly among the most articulate climate scientists in the English language. And she'll say things like, two degrees doesn't sound like much, but think of the difference between 98.6 and 100.6 if you have a fever in Fahrenheit. That's the difference between being well and being sick. So everybody immediately goes, okay, I get that. Now, that's not inaccurate. That's true. So what I hope is that the scientists and the activist community can pay as much attention to cognitive science as they do to climate science. And then we'll get somewhere. Definitely. 
And I wanted to talk a little bit about also what's going on today with all the wildfires we're seeing, the heat waves. So you've approached the climate crisis through the lens of marketing an idea before, as you were saying, but you've also said sacrifice doesn't sell. As we see more and more of these issues coming up with the climate crisis, do you still hold this to be true? And can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah. I mean, sacrifice does not sell. Sure, a day may come when things are so bad that certain forms of sacrifice will be accepted by the population as it is in times of war. But generally speaking, what we need to do to reverse climate change does not necessarily involve much sacrifice. We can have cars. They're just going to be non-polluting and we can have more mass transit. We'll be able to take vacations and have airplanes. They're just not going to add carbon to the atmosphere. There's rapid development happening in decarbonizing aviation. We can heat our homes and cool them. We're just going to use high-efficiency heat pumps powered by the sun and the wind and the tides. So I'm not trying to Pollyanna this. It's not going to be easy, but we have 90% of the technology that we need to solve this problem. And in most cases, not every, most cases, that technology, after it's deployed, will be cheaper than the energy and transport system we have today. So I don't see why we need to sell sacrifice. I mean, sure, it'd be great if people bicycled more, but there'll be plenty of transit options available. People will need to eat less meat. That is true. But if we did the right public education work on that, we can explain to people that means you'll get less heart disease and cancer while you're also helping to save the atmosphere and the biosphere for yourself and your children. I do disagree with people that try to say we all have to go vegan. That will never suck. But if you say to people, eat animal protein twice a week, then sure, people might say, okay, if that's what we need to do. So I think diet is a place where sacrifice actually will be needed. But in other places, what depends how long we wait? As you know, the world's climate scientists through the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change have said that we have to cut global pollution in half by 2030. And that's to have a 50% chance of maintaining a livable climate that's not increasing more than 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, that's to have a 50% chance. And we are nowhere on the way to doing that. So if we get on the road to doing that, there'll be much less sacrifice required. If we wait many more years, yeah, sure, then everyone's going to have a lot of sacrificing to do, including we'll have to abandon most of the coastal cities of the world. And when I say that to people, you sound like a nut. But that's just the physical truth. That's what we face if we don't hurry up. Already you see they're finding that Greenland's melting much faster than they thought. It has melted not as long ago as they thought. Seas were 27 feet higher. That's going to happen again if we don't reverse course. But also as for sacrifice, we always have to be very careful. If you only talk about how bad things are going to be, people's nervous systems shut down. And it's very hard for them to contemplate this. You know, the, some psychologists have theorized that when we think about destruction from climate change, it goes through similar mental circuits as when we think about death and dying. And who wants to think about that, right? Only some, you know, high-end Buddhist meditators. So we have to show people that this is a solvable problem. We have to show a lot of hope, but we can't only show hope because we're in an urgent situation. So we have to balance hope, I would say mostly hope, with some fear and urgency. Exactly. And so that people understand the relevance to not people on the other side of the world, but how it hits home. David Fenton is a fascinating figure that has worked on many of the great issues of our time with many of the great figures. 
His current dedication to working on climate change is incredibly inspirational. I was fascinated and even taken aback to hear about his insights on communications and climate change, especially as someone who has worked on climate change communications, specifically in climate justice. First of all, the enlightenment fallacy really resonated with me. Of course, everybody should want to help fight this issue. Don't the facts speak for themselves? But it is called a fallacy for a reason. And as Fenton said, we are up against a formidable enemy that has a seemingly endless amount of resources and treats its climate change communications as a marketing strategy. Like Fenton said, scientists and even activists may feel it is beneath us to simplify climate change into words like pollution, and blanket, especially because once you get into it, you realize how much more there is to climate change than just the pollution aspect. The shutting off of the Gulf Stream, the changing of El Nino and La Nina, not to mention the social repercussions of climate change, climate justice, and so much more. When you start to look at it, it becomes really hard to separate climate change from the myriad of social issues in our lives, to look at the link between extractive capitalism, colonialism, and climate change to think about environmental racism, and more. And it should be noted that the people already affected by climate change, climate injustices, environmental racism, and more, may find it frustrating to hear the idea that climate change still needs to be simplified for people that don't understand it or don't know about it. But it's heartening to know that Fenton believes that when truly and adequately informed, the general public will unite and take a stand against the fossil fuel industry and its co-conspirators and enablers. It can become easy, especially as listeners of this podcast, to be confused at the idea of people not understanding or hearing about climate change often. But that is why, now more than ever, we need world leaders such as Biden to really step up and talk about climate change, and of course, act on it with the care and vigor that such a huge, life-threatening issue deserves. It's time to come together and organize on both a small and massive scale to stand up to the fossil fuel industry and reclaim the planet we call home. And now, back to the podcast. And I know that you're working with Adam McKay, and I like this concept of laughtivism. So maybe as we're doing the sacrifice, we can find the humor in it so we don't We better are all going to cry. <laughs> Yeah, well, Adam in some ways is carrying on in the Abby Hoffman tradition. And by the way, he's a collector of 60s memorabilia from activists back then. So we bonded over that. Yeah, you have to, you have to have fun. That's a motivator. Why do people just want to be grim all the time? And I mean, we're facing something that no generation has faced, which is literally the potential collapse of civilization. I mean, that's really what we're facing. So it is hard to contemplate, but it's not necessary. Now, this is the other thing that amazes me, that imagine what Shakespeare would have done as a storyteller and dramatist with our current situation. So here again, I'm going to sound to some people like a crazy person, but what I'm about to say is 100% accurate. So there is a group of about 100 mostly white men at the fossil fuel companies and their bankers who, who know and have known for 50 years that their products risk ending life on earth and human civilization. They've known this for 50 years. Their scientists told us this in the 1970s and their response to it was to lie about it and cover it up. And they are determined to make as much money as they can in the next 10 to 30 years while they think that we'll still let them operate. Regardless of the consequences, they're willing to cause mass extinction knowingly to make money. Pretty dramatic. What's ever been more dramatic than that? And yet do we talk about it this way? Hardly at all. 
we allow a lot of people to think they're the cause of climate change. Well, I drive, I heat my house. What am I supposed to do? And what we should do instead is help people see, as you know, some great friends of mine have said, climate change is actually a crime scene. It is not your fault. These oil, coal, and gas executives have known for 50 years what they're doing to us, and they have lied about it and corrupted the political process. It's their fault. It's the fault of these big polluters. And that's the way we should talk about this. Exactly. We need that systems change. The individual, of course, pushing the system to listen. And in many ways, in the U.S. and in other parts of the world, there's this cult of ignorance, as Isaac Asimov said, this kind of strain of anti-intellectualism. It's been this constant thread winding its way through political and cultural life where some claim are nurtured by this false notion that democracy means that my ignorance is just as good as your knowledge. <laughs> How do you overcome that? It's very hard to get through that mindset. It is hard, and it's made much harder by YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the rest. These tech companies who we've turned the public square over to have no responsibility and they actually have no liability either by law for all the incredible stupidity and falsehood that are spread on their platforms. Yeah, it's incredible. People spend over a billion hours on YouTube every single day. And if we don't deal with the monopoly power of these platforms that in this country are totally unregulated, in Europe, of course, they're taking steps to regulate it. And that's because they've seen what happens before when there's propaganda unchecked and what it does to countries. And we haven't seen it here yet, although we're risking it now with Trump coming back to power potentially. So that mindset that, you know, everybody's facts are equally valid and that everybody gets to have their own set of facts. Yeah, that's coming from social media. It comes from Rupert Murdoch too, from Fox, like so-called news. But if you look at the audience for Fox compared to the penetration of the tech platforms, it's tiny. Fox is tiny. The tech platforms are the biggest part of this problem. And in my opinion, until they're made liable for their content and until there's more effective regulation about purposeful knowing falsehood being spread on their platforms, then we're going to be in this mess. Because in a democracy, you have to have an informed citizenry. You know, a pollster I know in the U.S. puts it this way. He says he used to poll people of different persuasions and everybody would have their own opinions, but about the same facts. Now everybody has their own facts. So that's untenable. We have to fix that. And I know people are going to say, oh, you want to censor people and all this stuff. No, there's no such thing as unlimited, absolute free speech or unlimited, absolute anything except maybe luck. And we have laws in this country. If you're the head of a public company and you lie about your financial performance, the prospects for your next merger and acquisition, you go to jail. That's restricted speech for a goddamn good reason. And the Federal Trade Commission has powers that they don't use enough to police false claims in advertising. Thank goodness in the UK, it's policed more. In many European countries, you cannot buy political advertising on television. It is illegal. That's a good thing. And they require all the TV networks to give equal time at length to candidates for free. So this free speech versus as an absolutism is a good way to kill a society. Not that it's simple, not that there's a perfect way to do it. There isn't. There's, when it comes to human beings, there's no perfect ever. 
Yeah, but they could put that into laws in order not to incentivize it. I think there would always exist some of the lies and the propaganda sure. to reward, you know, viral lies, you know, not to weaponize. It used to be hard to find pre-internet. True, there were crazy right-wing organizations in the U.S., but they were small. They were hard to find. You'd have to, like, figure out their address and write them a letter and all this. So now it's the YouTube recommendation engine blaring this at you in order to keep your eyeballs on their platform so they can make money. Shame. Shame on them. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, for those of us who might be drawn to love and positivity, that to find out that anger is actually the thing that keeps us clicking and watching, to discover that is kind of sad about the human it's rights. reptilian. Now, of course, it's linked to a whole economic issue, which is pretty global, but worse in the United States than many places, which is income inequality. People are angry. And they have good reason to be angry. A lot of their wealth and productivity was stolen from them and transferred to the top 1% of the country. That's a fact. And they're mad about it. And who can blame them? And a lot of their jobs were exported. And the minimum wage hasn't gone up in, what, 15 years. And America is kind of the jungle for most people. Most people live paycheck to paycheck. They don't have $500 in savings for an emergency. They have no guaranteed health insurance. They have no guaranteed pensions. To go to school, you have to go $200,000 in debt. In many European countries, in Canada, et cetera, it's much less of a jungle for the average person, although it's far from perfect. Yeah, there's certain basic human rights and healthcare and education are considered across Europe that. Yeah, people are less desperate. And yet, don't you love it when Ted Cruz and these idiot American politicians are whoa. You wouldn't like us to be like Europe. I'm like, yes, please. Let's be more like Europe. <laughs> that reminds me, although I want to speak about some of these many figures that you've worked with, like Al Gore and Nelson Mandela, these very inspiring figures across sure. uh, social justice environment. But just very briefly, that reminds me of the Marjorie Taylor Greene message that was quoted verbatim recently by Joe Biden, when she was saying... <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Yeah. Hey, Nan. That was Marjorie Taylor Greene talking about all the things he's done. Of course, she thinks they're all terrible and most people will think they're all great. And he just smacked on all these positives, making your life better and for healthcare and everything for the environment. And uh, <laughs> I endorsed this message. I said, it was brilliant. Yeah, it was very brilliant. Yeah, you know, Joe Biden is a good person. And it's just sad to me that he and the people around him don't use the so-called bully pulpit of the presidency of Teddy Roosevelt term. The president is the only person with daily access to shape the public mind. And Trump did it very consciously. Biden doesn't do it. And it's really too bad. I mean, this president has never given a primetime speech about climate change. Never. He's not had one public meeting with a climate scientist to educate the public about what we face. It's very sad. He's done a lot of great things, but he could do so much more if he would mobilize the public mind. But he doesn't seem to realize he has that power. With everything that's going on, Biden has done a lot and really brought that forward from, you know, you worked with Al Gore. Just advancing many things that were spoken about before and didn't get quite past the mark. Although so. let's point out, Biden's also done some terrible things, approving all this new oil drilling. That's just reprehensible and inexcusable. And I don't think it cancels out. And by the math, it certainly does not cancel out all of the climate progress that the legislation is making and will make. But still, it's reprehensible.
Yeah, I don't like that those bargains are made. I'd have to believe that it was done with an intention of that other things wouldn't get passed somehow. But yes, of course, I'm... Yes, I understand. I hate that bargaining. So speaking about this, you're one for reaching across to conservatives to try to get that climate messaging across. And speaking of inspirational figures, I think of Nelson Mandela, who you knew. Again, a great compassionate figure, you know, even after his many years of imprisonment. A saint. Yeah. The only saint I've ever met, actually. Yeah, Nelson Mandela. Wow. Imagine after 27 years in prison, he had no anger. He had completely transcended anger. Totally. He had nothing but heart. I don't know how he did that. If it was me, I don't know about you, and they'd kept me in prison for 20 years, I'd come out of machine gun people. And he was intent on healing and unity. And he accomplished a lot of that. It was very remarkable. I once went to a meeting that he had. I was in South Africa and it was with some of his former jailers and they were meeting with Mandela's architect. He was building a house in the suburbs of Johannesburg and he wanted it to be an exact replica of a house he lived in on the grounds of Polesmoor Prison in Johannesburg. I think it's in Johannesburg. Maybe that was near Cape Town. So he gathered his former guards with the architect and they were going over a model of the house to get it exactly right. And they were laughing and joking and backslapping and hugging. And I'm like, what? These are the people that jailed him. Yeah. I've never met anybody like that. Amazing. And that's, it's just such a true message as we go forward through this transitional decade, or we think about those things like sacrifices. We can ultimately only, we can imprison ourselves. Like if we can go someplace in our mind, can't take that away, no matter how we're limited. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't be angry at the people. Maybe after we can try to forgive them a little, perhaps. But as for conservatives, it's inevitable that more Republicans in the United States will demand action on climate change as the weather worsens. You can be sure of that. Now, why isn't it happening now? Well, part of the reason is that if you're a conservative in this country and you go online, all you're ever going to see about climate change is it's a hoax. Carbon dioxide is good for you. Plants need it. You will never see anything else. So how can you expect them to believe anything else when 98% of the content of perceptual flow to them like that is false? So I did an experiment and made videos where Republicans talk to Republicans about how climate change threatens conservative values like health and freedom and prosperity, which of course it does, security. And we bought these into the social media feeds of conservatives in, I think, about 12 congressional districts. And we measured everything. We hired a Republican polling firm to measure the results. When people were exposed to these, conservatives changed their mind. And again, because we hijacked their perceptual flow. And so we could do a lot more of that. And I think we need to, because as you help raise the visibility of conservatives on climate, it gives political space and safety for other conservatives to come forward. So I think this is a really important project. I've been amazed at how difficult it is to raise money to do this, given how important it is. But we're not going to get any permanent lasting legislation in the United States without some conservative support. You can't do everything by executive order. It doesn't last. And there will be Republican administrations in the future. But yeah, I'm kind of disappointed that we don't do more of those. Yeah, we have to put aside those divisions. As you say, I don't even want to just talk about human life because there's a whole biodiversity. We both just saving the planet and everything that lives on it. Have you seen what's going on with the orcas in the Straits of Gibraltar where they're attacking boats and they're going for the rudders and knocking out the rudders? Quite a few boats. 
So I have a theory about this. It's a crazy unscientific theory. I think they're mad. We're destroying their food supply. We're acidifying their oceans. And I think they're attacking us. I know someone using artificial intelligence to try to decode whale language. Let's see what they come up with. Yeah, I think so. I mean, and you have the tuskless elephants because they kind of survive in the... Right. Oh, but that's, I don't know, yeah, but, rudders, that's conscious behavior. You know, they do have language. We know orcas have excellent problem-solving skills and high intelligence and can be vicious apex predators when they need to be. But in this case, they are definitely sending us a message. So in closing, as you think about the future and, of course, the beauty and wonder of the natural world, you know, what you learned as your years as an activist, what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Well, the planet's a miracle and there's no reason that we can't sustain it and stay here. But we don't take on these very corrupt evil forces intelligently in a sophisticated way by reaching masses of people with the truth effectively and mobilizing them then the planet's going to expunge us. The planet will be fine. But we, and probably, what, 70, 80% of the other species we share the miracle with, will be gone. And the planet will start over. Life will start over. So we could avoid that. That is not written in stone. But the next few years will decide it. Look, the Yale figures show that two-thirds of Americans, and I'm sure this is true in many other countries, report that they rarely or never hear anyone talking about climate change or see it in the media. Rarely or never. So how are you supposed to solve a problem no one's talking about? So we need to make a priority of reaching the majority of the public in a hurry. And if we do that, we'll change the political will and the political dynamic. And we'll have a mass movement that can overcome the corruption of the fossil fuel industry. So that's why I'm optimistic, because I'm sure that's going to happen. But we need to make it happen in time. Indeed. And so thank you for your courage and for all these years taking a stand. And I know that we've only touched the tip of the iceberg in terms of all the important work you've done and continue to do today. Thank you, David Fenton, for your 50 years as a progressive agitator, working for the environment, human rights, and social justice, for being a unifying force to transcend our challenges to create a better future for all. We all live on one planet we call home. Thank you for adding your voice to One Planet Podcast and the creative process. Thank you for having me very much. I'm not done yet. One Planet Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalki Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Evelyn Moll with the participation of collaborating universities and students. The associate interview producer on this episode was Evelyn Moll. Digital media coordinator was Sam Myers. Theme music is written and performed by Juan Sanchez. We hope you've enjoyed this program. If you'd like to get involved in One Planet podcast and be part of the climate change solution, just drop us a line at team at oneplanetpodcast.org. Thank you for listening.